Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Terry Talks Fiction. Today might be a bit of a shorter episode, although you'll know that in time before uh, I do, of course, because you can see the time code on the podcast where I'm just sitting down to record it now, but I'm still struggling with a head cold at the moment, so I apologise out front for the vocal quality, and it's a little hard to, uh, to talk and breathe at the same time, so we'll see how far I can last. But I did also just finish reading Ready Player Two by Ernest Cline, the sequel to the pop culture smorgasbord that was the book and the movie Ready Player One. And I've got some thoughts about the sequel that I'd like to share. First off, it's hard not to address the obvious elephant in the room, which is that the book's been out for a while and there has been a lot of commentary on it already. Everything ranging from the choices of the pop culture things to include in this second novel to the social commentary in it, particularly with the way the book you know, deals or doesn't deal with trans characters, queer relationships, race and gender in general, and the obvious similarities of this book to the first one. And I'd like to start with that last point as the launching pad here as well. I didn't read Ready Player One. Uh, I had that book read to me by the audiobook shortly after it came out uh, several years ago. And I have to confess that I really loved it. I thought it was great. Uh, Will Wheaton's performance of the audio was fantastic and engaging. And I'm a real sucker for sort of virtual reality storylines, as it were. It's it's the sort of thing that really excites my imagination, getting me thinking about what the world might look like once, if and when, this technology does exist and become commonplace. And Ready Player One's technology, it was that right kind of step into the future without taking a great leap at the same time, because we had people existing in these virtual spaces and the virtual world of the Oasis, but it was kind of a clunky, dirty sci-fi method of getting in there. You had to put on your vi- the visor which sat over your head, the gloves which sat over your hands to give you sort of tactile impressions. Uh, by, they would squeeze the feedback onto your fingertips and palms and so forth. You could upgrade to a full body suit, which would have all haptic sensors uh, throughout it now. It was the first time I'd ever heard the word haptics, but see it all the time now in discussions of uh, game controllers uh, with just the idea that they rumble and shake when something happens on the screen. And if you wanted the full immersive experience, you'd have to get the treadmill or the full wraparound suspension unit so that you could move around as much as you like. The game would track your movements and input them into the game. And that was a really, it was a really cool way of looking at it. It was a really easy to access, easy to believe, easy to understand method of presenting this virtual world. And the stakes of that first book also reflected that aesthetic. Like they, this was a book with large but very well-defined and narrow stakes and character goals. Because you had these hunters looking for Easter egg clues throughout the virtual world in order to gain control, majority shareholdership, of 
that virtual world. It was very Willy Wonka. It was very uh, golden ticket search. It was something we've seen enough times before and not something that was so grandiose and overblown that it became difficult to believe. Like The killings and the murders that happened in the real world based on what was going on in the digital world logically tracked because we can understand and believe corporations wanting to secure their own interests and that again has been a narrative we've seen play out in fiction a number of times and probably seen it happen in the real world more than we'd like to admit but we haven't realized it at the time so for all those reasons and more i was pretty excited really to come into ready player two and see where the story went from there now that the protagonist of the first book wade watts is the controller of the oasis he and his group of the High Five, the top Easter egg hunters from the previous book, are all equal partners in this endeavour. It was going to be really interesting to see where the book went with that and how it was going to change the stakes now that they were in this position. And it seems that Klein's answer to how do you top the narrative progression and the plotline of the first book in the second was just to deliver exactly the same plotline again, but changing the stakes so that they were less believable and less engaging. Which is a real shame, because on the surface level, the concept of the second book has some real legs. There's been developing technology, which now has changed the way that users interact with the Oasis. Instead of these bulky external pieces of equipment, you get basically a skullcap hat that you put on and directly neurologically link into the landscape. And so it does all the sorts of things that in the previous book, you'd have to go out and buy like an air conditioner, which could mix various chemical components and waft them at you based on the data that was in the area that you're exploring in the Oasis. These various sort of perfume vials which get mixed together at various quantities to produce the right kind of smell for where you are at to give you better immersion. Now, the neurological interface that they use to access the Oasis just plugs that information directly into the part of your brain that understands smell, and you, so you, you experience that as though you were really smelling something. It's a lot more elegant, but that also makes it a lot more boring. The bulky haptic suits the way that everything was effort to be able to deliver that experience to the people that we were reading about in the narrative made it more real and made it more accessible and made it more engaging as a premise. Now that you've just got this hat that does everything, it really loses something in the world building and the scale of the narrative. And while that's part of the point, because part of the point of this book is to be just further exploring that breakdown between reality and fantasy that was started in the first book, it sort of falls into almost that Hollywood trap of, you know, bigger has to be better. Uh, Always have to, this, you know, you always have to up everything, up every ante in the sequel, where really it would have been more interesting, I think, to explore these narrative questions that the book wants to bring up regarding consciousness and responsibility while still having just that layer of separation 
physical separation in the book between the characters and the virtual world so that we who are standing outside of the book and reading the book are sort of in the same position because we're not directly experiencing this narrative. We are interpreting the narrative through another medium, whether that's audiobook or, or paperback or a digital version of the print. The first way, in the first book, it was sort of more poetically reflective, I guess, of the way that we interact with our media and just having it all be, air quotes, real all the time really sapped some of the uniqueness out of the concept. And I'm certainly not the only person to use the word lack of uniqueness about this book. There's been a lot of commentary online, specifically how this book relates to the first one, with just repeating another scavenger hunt like they did in the first one. But somehow this book manages to, it's sort of with the about the same space, it somehow manages to make the actual quest a lot less engaging. There's there's really no barriers to these guys going through and just succeeding with everything. The entire book is just, a se- there's seven clues, so it's a sequence of seven times in a row that the, that the people who are hunting for these clues realise, oh, I've got to go to that place. So they go to that place, and as soon as they get there, they say, right, I have to do this. So they do this, and then they go, all right, I've just got the clue for the next place. And it just keeps repeating like that. There's really, there's not a lot that's in this book which is actually challenging the characters. They don't emotionally grow through struggle, through having to engage with the clues and the narrative and really puzzle things out. They instantly know what they're supposed to do every time because they're experts. And that can only get you so far with engagement into a narrative. It was a disappointing after all the different barriers that Wade Watts faced in the first book because of his circumstance and situation. Being this poor kid in the stacks who had to scrounge for the equipment he needed to access the Oasis and having to split his time between the real world where he was dealing with all of these barriers and the fantasy world where he was the expert and where he did have the cool tools because of his wealth and fame in that regard, having to keep a foot in both realities and use having the text use the real world parts to really ground the character and really introduce those difficulties, whereas this entire sequel all takes place within the virtual world, though he's experiencing it as though it were the real world. It's a really crucial and key difference in the way that the story can be told. You know, like, you know, like George Lucas doing the original trilogy, all the things that were going wrong and all the things that restricted him forced him to be better. And now in this book, when he is a multi-billionaire who's got enough money to be building uh, his own personal spaceship to head off to another star, another star system, there's no challenge levied on him that equals the, the struggle that he faced in the first book. And it, it seems that the book tried to shift 
the burden of narrative difficulty from the physical, those sort of physical elements to the emotional ones by this wedge in between the relationship between him and Artemis, who had got together at the end of the first book, uh, by putting this wedge in between Wade Watts and everybody else in humanity. And it sort of tried to put a wedge between Wade Watts and his emotional connection to James Halliday, the creator of the Oasis, for whom he had become a personal expert to win the Scavenger Hunt of the first book. But those emotional points don't, they don't really land. The problems he's having with Artemis throughout the book don't really impact anything. They end exactly, it ends exactly the way that you think it will from the very outset, from the moment that you hear they were having problems and why. And the other personal relationships he has in the book are they seem superficially only there in order to solve a narrative problem rather than narrative problems arising from the actual real-life circumstances of these characters. He's got the right people with him at the right time who have the right knowledge to do the right thing, and they all sort of drop off one by one only after they've contributed their part already, so it, it doesn't matter that they're gone. And although it's billed from the start that, you know, this is a change. Now, now if you die in the Matrix, you die in real life, we don't really feel the pressure of that at all because it all happens, all of that pressure is taken away from on the page in the scene action and it's transferred down the line. So the character avatar will sort of, will just disappear and Every time that happens, the first thing that happens in the book is not Wade thinking, holy hell, I've lost my best friend. Oh no, my this person that I am so emotionally invested with has just disappeared and I don't know what's become of them. I don't know whether they are just dead now or whether they're going to be, I can rescue them or if they can come back later somehow. Those are not the first thoughts. Every single time it happens, the first sentence after Sub Player's avatar winks out of existence is, I ran over and collected all their stuff. Which is a very video game. It's kind of funny, but it also just sucks away any emotional impact from every single one of those scenes. And it was a bit disappointing too to see how, at the same time, the returning characters from the previous book are really underutilized and the new characters that are introduced aren't really used at all they don't get page time it just doesn't seem finished it seems like it's an unfinished thought it's an unfinished part of the manuscript which ended up getting published anyway uh the characters i'm really talking about here are the the low five so we've got lohengrin a an avatar who is a fan of wade watts Wade Watts being Parzival in in his avatar name. Lohengrin is the son in Arthurian legend of Parzival, who is the person who found the Holy Grail. Her and her crew's introduction really just doesn't have any sort of impact. It From the moment that they were introduced early on in the book, it did seem like these were going to be the people that were replacing the crew from the previous book. And through working emotionally with the these new people, it would help Wade find his way 
emotionally back to reconnect with his old crew and Artemis. And it's just it really seemed like that was what the book was going to be doing in the opening in the early chapters. And then it didn't. It just introduced these characters and then they left. And they were gone. It was horribly disappointing, really. I was looking forward to seeing Wade specifically getting to learn some lessons in this new environment, which he then brings back to his sort of, you know, quote unquote real life. And I think this is part of the reason too why there's a lot of commentary about how awful or how silly or how it's just sort of, you know, it's just flag waving without anything actually real behind it. Because Lohengrin is a trans character. And Wade's reaction to discovering this by creeping on them online and illegally accessing their birth certificate and and nonsense is to go, oh, okay, and then go on with things. Which, in isolation, apart from the creeping on going through all the secret files and stuff which he shouldn't have been doing, apart from that, this is seems to me like it's a great way of including a trans character in the book. It's just, it's bringing it up so that the audience knows and understands. You know, it's not particularly elegant. We don't find out through context clues, but it brings it up and then it doesn't treat it as a focus for her character for the rest of the book. She's just her character. The problem is her character is a din the rest of the book. If Wade had been spending time with the low five, then great. You've actually got a chance to sort of dig into these issues or to ignore the issues because they are issues which should be ignored by this point of human history. It should, maybe it's not, it's not worth thinking about the fact that this character is trans because, okay, they're trans, we move on. And that would have been fine too. The problem is that it gets a page or even like a couple of paragraphs where this is brought up and shortly thereafter the character is never seen again until the final act until the basically the final chapter of the book so i can see why it's rubbed people up the wrong way to me it reads like it was an an earnest uh, attempt by klein hoho to make some inc- to put some inclusion into the book but it's just it was it was really inelegantly handled, and it feeds into this feeling that there was nothing for Wade to really experience in this book. It was just going to place to place and doing the thing immediately that you already knew how to do because you're so good at everything, and then move to the next place. And that kind of feeling just compounds itself on every planet they go to, and every place they are, and everything that they do. It's just it's not as fresh and it's not as engaging as the first book because the first book had a lot of that as well like wade almost always found the answer very quickly but he did have to work for it a bit more like once they got the first clue once lohengrin figured out the first clue and gave it to to wade once that first domino fell all the rest just fell immediately Uh, he didn't have any problem with any of the rest of it and uh, it's not a real way to build tension through the narrative and unfortunately uh you know a musically themed fist fight between 
uh, you know, their ragtag group and uh, seven different iterations of the artist known or formerly known as Prince across different stages of their career. It's not as good as a final confrontation between Ultraman, who we've already seen someone die whilst being, and Mechagodzilla being piloted by the faceless corporation who wants to deny democratised internet access to the world. Those two do not stack up next to each other, but the Prince fight seemed like it was the sort of the big, the big climactic ticket item. Because it got a lot more time, a lot more page time, than the fight between Og and James Halliday's avatar at the end of the story. And I don't feel like that's much of a spoiler to say, because again, it's one of those things that seems very obvious is going to happen as you're uh, reading through. I won't go into the details about the fight, but because there are some twists, there's one thing in particular uh, relating again to Lohengrin's involvement in that in that fight, which that was the thing that you didn't, oh, you know, not that you didn't see coming, but that make has it all make sense. But pretty early on, you pretty much figure out exactly every plot beat of this book. And while that's not necessarily a bad thing, it did make it just that little bit more dull to read through when everything else, as we've discussed at this point, was already either not as good or felt like it was missing opportunities. And that sense of tension and peril that runs through the book, its again, it seems like a very Hollywood-esque style of ramping up the stakes. The idea that these people are trapped in the Oasis and can't get out, and if they stay there too long, their brains will fry because of the problem of being jacked into this uh, system for, for too long beyond the safety limits. It's a lot more dangerous than, oh, we might not win the several billion dollar prize and the shareholder tickets to own the company. But at the same time, it feels less actually tangibly dangerous because it's all, as I said before, happening sort of, you know, it, it's all real now. There's We don't have those. There's nothing that's sort of esoteric enough about the threat that you can feel that it's existential. Like, I could understand and connect with the existential nature of if this corporation gains control of the Oasis, life on the planet Earth will not be the same, and it will be categorically worse for everyone to cut and paywall off this experience that is so fundamental now to the way that society operates. I can understand and connect with that one. This one, you know, I've taken several hundred million people hostage and all their brains will fry unless you do this thing for me. Again, on the surface level, it seems like that's, yes, that's a ramping up of stakes. Now people's lives are on the line. But it's also everything we've ever seen before. This is the, it's the Matrix all over again. It's sought out online. It's both of those things being directly referenced by Ready Player Two with a big wink and a, and a tongue sticking out to say, oh, it's just like that, isn't it? Identifying where your manuscript is not 
any different from everything that's gone before you, merely identifying that is not enough to get you a pass. You have to identify that and then show us how it is different. And this book doesn't do that second step. The James Halliday AI avatar is an interesting concept. Jacking into the Matrix and not being able to escape is an interesting concept. Underlying current on the nature of who you are and how you experience the world is an interesting concept. But none of these really come up to their full potential. And I would have been really much more... I would be really interested to know how those themes could have been addressed if we didn't have another Easter egg hunt. If there was a different framing device for the narrative uh, in the sequel, I suspect that I wouldn't have felt like I was reading so much of the, experiencing so much of the same again in the narrative. All that said, though, I have to admit I still really enjoyed the book. It's it's kind of fun to gripe about things that you feel could have been better, or that where you feel there were missed opportunities. And, um, and you know, complain a bit like the characters in the book that it is like other things that you've seen or read or watched before. But I still really enjoyed it for the simple fact that the book goes out of its way at every opportunity to give the characters space to just gush over the things that they enjoy. And that's something that I'm coming to love a lot more in my fiction and in my, you know, in the other media that I consume at the moment, like if there's a, if I've got a choice between a review which is just slamming a book or slamming a, a movie and saying everything that's wrong with it, or a, a review which is just going to, to, you know, etc., it'll acknowledge some of the poor points but really just gush about what it loved, then that's the one that I'm going to want to watch because I, I like the positivity and I like getting that feeling that of seeing someone just go off about something that they really love. And this book has that in spades. It's part of why everything's so easy for the characters when they get to these planets, because they'll get to a planet, they'll recognize where they are, and then someone will just go off about, oh, this is, this is pretty woman, you know, the, oh, did you know, like the deep, the deep dive in the, in the history of how this film was made, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it was so, exciting and interesting and you can see that they're animated about it and you can see that they're really enjoying it and that's infectious and this book is full of those infectious moments like every single planet that they go to every step on the seven clues has a moment where someone can just go off about how much they love this property and obviously that's Clyde every time but through the different the different characters in these positions and that's great it's really fun to read it's as i said just a second ago it's infectious it made me excited vicariously about some of these i've never actually seen pretty woman using that example but the example of when they go to the planet which is the first age of ardor from the Silmarillion, and have to creep in to morgoth's fortress and steal the one of the Silmarils from his crown like that that was fun. That was I, I. I enjoyed reading that, watching Wade and Artemis be Beren and Luthien, and creeping through and replaying the story that I read. You know, I read the Silmarillion when I was like twelve or something. So it's been a part of my life for forever. 
And it was really, it's fun to see them being in these positions. And I imagine that if you had more of a connection than I did with the other media from the other things, if you were a fan of Prince, perhaps that rock battle would have hit a bit harder. Uh, If you'd watched Pretty Woman, all those different ones. If you're more of a Dungeons and Dragons player than than I am, which one day, one day I'll play a full game without the Dungeon Master just tossing in the towel. There'd probably be a lot of those experiences as well. So in that regard, the book is really good and it's really fun. And I did read through the whole thing in a day. I, I, I sat down and I couldn't, I didn't want to put it down. I did just want to keep reading it because it was engaging and because it was fun. And although it was frustrating for all those reasons that we've spent like half an hour describing, turns out this wasn't very much of a shorter episode after all. It's still the sort of book you walk away at, walk away from at the end of the day and think, you know, that was, it wasn't as innovative as the first. It didn't change my life and the way I think about the possibilities of VR, like the first one did for me. But it was fun. And it was a it was a good time. It was nice to watch these people being excited. And if that's all you get out of this, that's not a bad thing. But that's enough from me on the topic. How did you guys find the book if you've read it? Uh, did you feel that it sort of didn't make up for itself in the way that the characters were so excited about things? overpowering just sort of that same similar repetitiveness of the concept both from the first book and from all the other media that we've seen that deals with this same topic i'd love to hear what you had to say about it and and have a discussion uh, about the different elements of the book there may have well there definitely were a few of the uh, pop culture references which flew right over my head so if you had a favorite one uh let us know either over on Twitter at Terry Talks Fiction or on the Discord server, Talking Fiction. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. And I'd love to sort of get into a chat about it. And until next time, I hope that you read or watch or play something that's really engaging. And I look forward to talking with you about it again soon. <laughs>